You are listening to the Left Right Forward Show with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Enjoy the show. This is Ambassador Delano Lewis, host of the Left Right Forward Podcast Show. I am pleased to welcome my guest today, Michael Steele, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and former Chair of the Republican National Committee. Although the interview was on July 16th this year, you will find his candid, insightful, and thoughtful comments are quite relevant to the political events of today. I know you'll be impressed with Chairman Steele's honesty and candor about the challenges of the Republican Party and his take on how to resolve those challenges. As my show begins today on KTAL, I am pleased that this guest, Michael Steele, will fulfill our promise to you, our listeners, to educate, to inform, and to inspire. As a longtime friend and colleague, it is an honor to introduce Michael Steele, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and former Chair of the Republican National Committee. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Left Right Forward Show, business and political solutions with Ambassador Delano Lewis. Welcome back. This is Left Right Forward podcast show, and I'm so excited today. I have a very good friend and esteemed colleague who was a former lieutenant governor of the state of Maryland. He's now an MSNBC commentator, and he'd been former chair of the Republican Party, a man who's known all over the country and the world uh, involved with politics in the U.S. and Republican politics, I might add, in the U.S., none other than Michael Steele. Michael, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It's great to have you. Hey, Ambassador, it's great to be with you. I love it. This is this is like old home connecting with you, bro. It's been a while. I, I know it sure it. has. We remember, <clears throat> excuse me, our time together uh, in the state of Maryland. <clears throat> yeah. And I was involved with my wife and foundation schools, and you were always involved and supportive in, in education. So it's just great to hear your voice. Thank you, sir. It's good to be with you, man. Very good. Well, you know, I want to start off with uh, what it's like. Excuse me. What it's like to be a Republican today, uh, and and get your get your reactions uh, about being a Republican in the Republican Party of of Trump, uh, particularly in light of this, you know, the last forty eight hours or so in relationship to the tweets with the uh, four w- women of color in Congress. I mean, just an incredible well, it, stuff. It, it, it is incredible. It's sad. Uh, I, borderline pathetic in many Mm -hmm. respects because um, a lot of this is being uh, perpetrated by the president of the United States. It's not like, you know, in the past where these events would occur and we would look to the president to, to, you know, give us guidance, to calm the waters, to set the record straight, to move the country past that moment into something uh, that's a little bit better, a little bit more clear. Um, but instead, we find ourselves in turmoil at the hands of the president by his tweets, by his right. words, by his actions. Uh, and it has really been a, a very uh, difficult and challenging uh, time for for those of us uh, who are left in the party. I mean, I was reading a statistic recently that said uh, some two million people uh, have uh, left the party in various parts of the country um in the last few months it's been it's it's that kind of that kind of hemorrhaging and and it's because you know when you you think about republicanism and you know we you know we can do the big battles and and have the back and forth um that um you know that that it's politics that's how the game is played Mm -hmm. but at the end of the day there was always this this um, uh, this expectation that you you acted in the good of the country, you acted in the interest of the country. We find ourselves not no longer doing that as a party. We're we're acting in the self interest of Donald Trump. And how do you um, how do you is, think that's going to play out, 
Michael, in terms of you and and the party, because he seems to have the party with him, at least. The oh, he does. Not, yes. Where, 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 where do you go? Well, you know, I look at it this way. It's like it's like this, uh, Del. If you if you invite me to your home, uh, or if I just even better yet, I just show up in your house. All right. right. You know, I came in with some other folks, and and I'm there in your dining room. And all of a sudden, I take your fine china and I start breaking it. Mm-hmm. And I go to the drapes and I start tearing them down. And I start marking on your walls. Do you leave or do you kick me out? Probably kick you out. <laughs> there you go. So that's how I look at it. Mm-hmm. This is my political home. And it is right. the political home for a lot of us. So you have this interloper that has gotten into the house uh, and who has, you know, Upturned the furniture, uh, written all kinds of graffiti on the walls, uh, and I re- I refuse to leave, and I refuse to be one of those to leave. I, my thing is the fight is worth it to stay inside because the value set, the things that define uh, the party of Lincoln, mm-hmm. uh, are not defined by Donald Trump. They're devi- defined by the history of the men and women who fought for women's suffrage, who fought to free slaves, who fought for civil rights, who fought for uh, a clean environment, who fought for um, you know, economic opportunity. Uh, those value sets, those principles still hold meaning for a lot of us. But you know, um, and, and as the lights dim, someone has to hold a flame up. Someone's got to hold that candle up. So, you know, like Reagan said, that shining city on the hill right. still needs someone inside with a light on so you can see it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I can appreciate those thoughts, but you know, I still have another question for you. And that is you called him an interloper. Explain to me how that happened because, you know, you're a former chair of the party, you know, politics and you, you know, the Republican party politics. How did he become an interloper? Because he seemed to not only interloper means you came in and you sort of took things over. Uh, you were on, tell me how that happened. Hell if I know. (laughs) (laughs) I still, I look back to that stage in 2015 and 16 and I look at those men and women on that stage and, and the problem was the expectation that they all had that Donald Trump would self-implode. Right. They, they were so politically tone deaf in the moment. They did not understand what he was doing. They had no response or reaction to what he was saying. Uh, he, he, they became the punchline for his former politics. Interesting. And they allowed it to happen. Mm-hmm. And when when rank and file Republicans saw that, it became entertainment. It right. became the show. It became someone who was saying all these things that they that they felt um uh, and and experienced for a long, long time. And so that was the manifestation of it for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was no course correction. I remember saying to party officials at the time, why do you always put Donald Trump in the center of the stage? Right. He should be at the edge of the stage. You've got mm-hmm. governors and senators. And they're like, well, you know, he's doing better than the public. Like, he's, he's not doing any better than anyone else at this stage in the, in the process. But they sort of created this space for him. He occupied it fully, and he has not let go of it since. And I think for a lot of us, you know, you know guys like, uh, Jeff Flake and and um, and others who you know kind of stood up. Ben Sass was in in the Senate, um, but again, what is the point if if you if you're standing there and you feel like you're alone? Which is mm-hmm. again why I say there got to be more of us to say this fight is worth it. Um, if if the things that we believed, if the again the value set that we ascribe to our politics matters. Um, then, yeah, you fight for it. If it doesn't, then guess what? We'll go the way of the Whigs, and something <laughs> right. else will replace it. Mm-hmm. And it, it could be it could be the party of Trump. Um, it could be Trumpism uh, on a more permanent basis um, or something else. We'll see. But I think as long as there's there's room to make that argument um, for those ideals that, you know, Reagan and, um, and Bush and and so many others um you know, have stood for, uh, you make the case. But, you know, this begs the question, Michael, about 
what people like you and people who agree with you with the with the scenario you just laid out that he took over the party by those weak candidates in 2015 and he has let he has not let go since then well what are you going to do as a republican going forward uh are you just going to sit back or are you going to challenge him uh what 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 are you going to do no you have to challenge you you have to challenge this is which is why you know, a moment like this with uh, the president's comments mm-hmm. regarding uh, the four women of color, congresswomen of color, um, telling them to go back to where they came from. Now, Donald right. Trump knew full well what he was saying when he said that. He certainly he, did. You know, you got Republicans out there talking about, oh, well, you know, he was talking about going back to their districts, going back to the communities. That's not what he meant. He mm-hmm. knew when he said he is of an age and from a time that he knows when a white man says to people of color, go back to where you came from, exactly what, what that, that means. means. You certainly. And, and there's, we, there's no hiding that. And, you, you know, you can play the millennial game where you're too young to understand and you don't know and, and it doesn't mean the same. That's a load of bunk. That's Any true. person of color, when they are told to go back where you're from, where you came from, when he refers to your homeland where he wants to send you back to as an asshole. Mm-hmm. Well, come on. Right, I mean, right. I mean, how stupid do we have to be? <laughs> so, so your point, your point is we're not that stupid. And uh, thank you. You're going to stand up to to those comments. And you know, I, I was listening to the news last night, and 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 people were talking about the media getting ready. You know, moving toward. Uh, calling it what it is, and it's racism. And it's been, we have been reluctant to use that word, certainly as it relates to the President of the United States. But I think we're at a point, don't you agree, that we have to call it what it is. Well, let's even go back. I mean, we talk about this moment now, but there's so many other examples before we even got to this moment. Right. I mean, and, and, and to be honest, it didn't start with Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. You know, it started it started many years ago when Donald Trump was in the private sector, the exactly. lawsuits that were brought against him for housing discrimination, the you know, the the his 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 response to those five young black men uh, in New York, you know, who were who were falsely accused of committing a crime, you know, and how he called for their death. I right. mean, so, you know, for again, taking everything on face value and ascribing whatever you want to it, at the end of the day, you still come back to the same spot. He is a, he's a white male of a certain age from a certain time um, who, if nothing else, should know better. Mm-hmm. But clearly because he traffics in this type of rhetoric and behavior, tells me he does, he does do it deliberately because it has the intended effect that he wants it to have. Uh, and it is a reflection of two things. One, how he genuinely feels, because mm-hmm. Donald Trump, if nothing else, will always tell you how he really feels. He cannot help himself. It mm-hmm. is in his nature. When you tell him, when he says something like, oh, there are good people on both, both sides, sides, and then he's forced to correct it and stand in front of a speech, in front of a podium and give a speech to fix that the next day. Mm-hmm. But then on the third day, in an, in off-the-cuff remarks reverts back to that original comment, that's where he is. That's his speech spot. That's what he believes. So it's always, he will always tell you what he really thinks. That's true. And number two, he recognizes the political value of doing so mm-hmm. because there are no consequences to him for doing it. Well, this leads to another point. Uh, we're talking to uh, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, Michael Steele, and former chair of the Republican uh, Party. Uh, that leads to to a question about uh, the consequences. Uh, there are two, two directions we can go. Uh, one is if you're willing to share uh, where the where the Republicans may go politically, given the situation you've talked about. And that would be interesting to hear. The second is... Where would the country go with our elected representatives uh, in the House and Senate, which is another issue? So I'll leave it to you which one you want to go at first. If you want to share 
Politically, you started to talk about Republicans and what they might do. This is your house and you want to kick him out. If you want to be more specific on that, that's one one thing I'd like to hear. The other is I think the listeners would be interested to get into what we all might consider doing with our representatives in the House and Senate. Well, I, I think, you know, I, 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 we're at a point where we've got to get beyond just trying to figure out the the psychoses of the Republican Party and Donald Trump, mm-hmm. um, because it's, it's, it's actually bigger than that. Okay. It, it runs deeper than that. Um, I think it's something that affects all of us. I mean, when you look at the 2016 election results, and what you see is something that some will say is disturbing, but I, I say it is, point of fact, a truth and a reality that belies um, the moments that we that we we think should say something better about who we are. And that is 53% of white educated females voted for Donald Trump for president in 2016. Mm. After everything they knew, mm-hmm. after everything he said about grabbing them in the private parts, his aggressive sexual uh, uh, behavior towards them, um, his, his uh, uh, public uh, displays of disrespect, um, and misogynistic language uh, and attitudes, they still voted for him. Um, two years later, in the recently uh, held midterm elections, 49% of those very same women voted for a Trump-supported or Republican candidate for office. Mm. So there's that. Mm-hmm. Given everything we know, everything we've seen Trump do when he came down the stairs uh at trump tower in 2015 to announce he's running for president he started off by saying basically hispanics are crooks criminals uh rapists etc that he wants to build a wall to keep them out and that he's going to make them pay for the wall 30 percent of them voted for him in november of 2016. that's incredible when you look at um, among African Americans, uh, his saddling up to David Duke, pretending he didn't know who David Duke was, who the hell pretends they don't know who the heck David Duke is if mm-hmm. you spent in five minutes in public life, right? right? All right, fine. But he goes down that road. Um, his Again, his own personal history uh, with uh, dealing with issues of race. Uh, and then, of course, uh, just the general, you know, talking of how he talked about black people in the campaign, campaign talking about my blacks and, mm-hmm. and all this other crazy. And what was the percentage it, of blacks voting for him? 10 percent. OK, 10 percent. Mm-hmm. So that to me is symptomatic of something. And it is it is it's culturally as as in socially symptomatic of where the country finds itself so i I look at trump less as a political pariah and all of that and and more as someone who is a a more immediate reflection of a deeper issue that is stirring inside the american psyche Mm -hmm. that 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 we deal with on issues of race and culture, dealing with others, our own fears and concerns. You know, now you've got people out here talking about Hispanics, you know, uh, illegal immigrants taking taking jobs from Americans. Okay, so who, now let's just take the word American substitute in white folks, because mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. <laughs> All right, right. That's, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. But tell me, um, are we going to ever see Tad sitting on a lawnmower cutting someone's lawn? Are we ever going to see Becky cleaning someone's house? Are we ever going to see Todd uh, picking up someone else's trash? Tell me what jobs these Hispanics, or these, these immigrants, legal or illegal, are taking from uh, Americans. Um, and so it all becomes this sort of game that's played in which we project uh, our, our issues, our concerns, our hatreds, our dislikes, uh, our fears on other people. And what's disturbing is how the president manipulates that. 
Absolutely right. And, and, and makes it entertainment to some degree for us. Uh, so that's, that's how you get numb to it. You hear people saying, well, that's Trump. Uh, well, you know, that, that's, that's just, you know, that's, I guess we have to accept it. Um, no, we don't. And so the question going into this cycle is, and I, I remember asking this in, in the 2018 cycle, what kind of government do you want and what kind of leaders do you want to run that government? Put another way, mm-hmm. what kind of country do you want to be? And what kind of people do we want to be in this country? Because those, those government, that government of, by, for the people, uh, those elected officials represent we, the people, they are ultimately a reflection of us. So it gets down to what kind of country we are and what kind of people we want to be or need to be. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of this starts. When we start answering those questions, then you either embrace what Trump offers and you say, that's the new America. That's, that's what America will be for the foreseeable future. Well, or I, you reject it. I think you're really getting to the right point here. And that is how we get the awareness of those things you talked about, about America, what kind of America we want, which talks about, which I think leads to the, to the, the House and the Senate. And I, yep. particularly the House, uh, with Speaker Pelosi. And I I remember reading some things that you said about Nancy Pelosi back in 2018, that you underestimate Nancy Pelosi at your peril, mm-hmm. <laughs> that you had predicted back in 2018 she was going to be the speaker. You predicted that uh, she was going to really be a real uh, albatross around the neck of President Trump. Uh, and just tell me, where do you think this is going to go uh, as far as the House is concerned and possibly the Senate to really get at some of the solutions that you say are needed for America, which I happen to agree? Well, you know, I think that I think the challenge for Nancy right now is that she's dealing with her left flank mm-hmm. and and her center flank. Um, and, and that basically has put her in a position where, look, she watched what the Tea Party uh, did to the leadership of Boehner and Paul Ryan, mm-hmm. John Boehner and Paul Ryan, where they systematically tore it down and ate, ate, ate those leaders up. Right. She refuses to fall into that trap. Mm-hmm. So she has sent a clear signal to the Ocasio-Cortezes, look, Yes, you're just four votes. Now, she doesn't mean that literally. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, some, some numbnuts out there were taking her literally. Well, <laughs> right. they have more than four votes. Mm-hmm. No, she was, she was giving, she was basically saying, you represent a minority within a very important majority in the House. And that majority was built not by the Ocasio-Cortezes, but by the center-left uh, Democrats who won in red districts. She knows that they, the Republicans only need 21 seats to take the House back. Mm-hmm. 21 seats. And so she is playing the long ball game of saying, let's be smart about not packing so far to the left that we alienate voters to the point that they take the seats away from us that we have We cannot build our majorities um, uh, when we're playing defense. We have to stay on offense. Allow me to do that. Uh, Do you think think she's going to be successful there? I think she will Mm -hmm. because, as I said in 18, don't underestimate (laughs) the power and influence of this woman. And I think you've already seen it. You know, know, Tlaib and Cortez and Omar and and, and, – and others, you know, think that they get to call the shots here. I'm like, you don't understand, you know, how this how this ultimately plays out. You can you can work this thing. You can beat up Nancy Pelosi all you want, but do you want Kevin McCarthy to 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 start assigning you committee assignments exactly. <laughs> in 2021? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's about being smart um, and tactical. This is why she she knows the country is not where the party is on impeachment. Mm-hmm. You, you've got more and more Democrats calling for impeachment. National polls show that that's, that's not even a 50% issue. 
uh, with the American people. Americans are hesitant to, to go down that road, largely because of the, the drama that will come from it, uh, the gut-wrenching politics that will be related to it, and the fact that I think we instinctively know it's what Donald Trump would like. Sure. Because it would give him a seedbed of stuff to go after um, uh, over the next year. He, play, he could play that victim role and play it to his Play advantage. that victim to the hilt. Absolutely. Play it to the hilt. We've, we've already seen how we'll do it. So I think from her standpoint, she's trying to be strategic uh, in her politics, whereas her left flanks are trying to be po- political without strategy. Mm-hmm. And that's and that is um, that's one of the challenges that she is learning to navigate, having watched what being political without strategy uh, can do if you don't check it. Right. That's a very, very good analysis. But 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 do you agree that that following the investigative oversight of the committees makes a lot of sense, whether it's judiciary, intelligence and, and those committees on financial oversight? Don't you think that makes sense to continue that oversight uh, in the the administration? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think that's what, what, you know, uh, the speaker has been trying to say and to do uh, is to say, we've got three or four committees in the House um, and that we we can use to prosecute um, a form of impeachment without impeachment. Right. You know, impeachment right. is a, a wholly political process. Mm-hmm. But but what what Nancy and the leadership has to be interested in, which is why it's important to get a Bob Mueller up in front of them, mm-hmm. is to tell the American people the story that they don't know. Because you line up ten people, I'd be I'd fall out if two of them actually read the Mueller report. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so she she recognizes that there is an intellectual uh, vacuum, an information vac vacuum, uh, rather that's that's missing here, uh, and she needs to fill that vacuum um, in a very clear um, and concise way. And so these committee hearings, and that's why the president's team is you know batting back subpoenas. Right, because they don't want to get in front of these committees to sit there to answer questions directly, because there is no amount of obstruction or obfuscation or bullying by Republican members on those committees mm-hmm. uh, that will save them from a pointed, direct question um, to a, 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 a cabinet official or an agency official, um, a campaign official, etc. Um, and, and they can't get around that because then you're talking perjury. Then you're talking about stuff that will stick to those individuals. And those individuals have a very limited space for, for you know, loyalty to Donald Trump. There's no I don't think any of them are, are going to do the Mike Flynn, I'll go to jail for you. Right. or you right. know, kinda, I don't think that's going to happen either. But, I don't think that's going to happen. But, but Michael, you, you, you really are uh, – giving a very, very good analysis here. You're really talking beyond party. You're really not talking Republican or Democrat. You're talking about what you think's best for the country. Uh, I'm going to ask you a question because I know you're trained in the law. You're a lawyer. You practice law. Uh, you've got that background and, and, and that expertise. I want to ask you a question about Mueller, the report, and what the impact might be. But I have a question for you. The question is, if there was not a legal counsel opinion at the Justice Department, which said that a sitting president could not be indicted, mm-hmm. would Robert Mueller indicted the president? Yes, without doubt, without hesitation. Incredible. There would have been at least ten. There would have been at least ten indictments. I, that's that the would way have I come out. Of, would have come out of come out of this, but Mueller. Um, and if anyone knows Mueller in this town, um, they know that he's someone who is a by-the-book guy. Right. Uh, and so he is not going to upset the apple cart for politics. He's mm-hmm. not going to play that game. Uh, and so, which is why all those Republicans who now spit on him and castigate him were praising him when he was first appointed. In fact, recommended him. Right. 
for for being appointed, uh, you know, special counsel to look into all of this because of his integrity, because of his blind eye of justice, if you will, uh, when it comes to looking at the facts. So, yeah, he would have. I thought but so, But there's too. this... There's this memo sitting there that says a, a sitting president cannot be indicted. And let's just keep in mind, people, it is a memo. It mm-hmm. is not law. Exactly. It is not constitution. It is a memo, an internal memo within the Justice Department. Mm-hmm. That's it. And so, he felt, I think he felt very much bound by that because he's, oh, he a, did. he's, he's a he man. Did. He's, he's by the book. Well, because it's, it's one of the things that guide, guide you know, those, in, those men and women in justice when they're doing their investigations, that's one of the bright lines. And, mm-hmm. and that's an internal line that's been drawn since the days of Watergate. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, yes, he would have, he, I think he would have brought those indictments. And I think that's why he, that he needs to get in front of Congress to be asked that question, because there is no way around it. He cannot sit there and say, that's right. No, mm-hmm. because then you look at, you know, page 300, and you go, wait a minute. <laughs> on this page, you you laid out the indictment. What do you mean? No. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what was the point of laying that out if you, you didn't think that there was something indictable there? Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think that that and that's what Mueller doesn't want to get into, but he's going to have to. And I he realizes so. that. Yeah. yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And the fact that that opinion was there and I think att- att- Attorney General Barr mischaracterized that and that press conference, I couldn't believe it when he summarized and said that Mueller came to those conclusions irrespective of the legal counsel opinion. And that was wrong. It was very clear mm-hmm. that that opinion guided uh, Robert Mueller. And, of course. Uh, and, you know, it, it was clear. The question's going to become, uh, uh, those questions are going to come at him, and I don't think he's going to be able to dodge them. And hopefully we'll get to the truth, which is what yeah, I, I think th- is important. I think we will. I think you're right about that. I think we will see what. Well, and it, well, the truth is already there. Yes. What yes. I think what and the Mueller report lays out the truth. Right. I think what what has to happen or what will happen is you're going to find that people will hear it for the first time. And and that's really kind of um, one of the difficult one of the difficult things here. You know, you know, I. I I was laugh- I'm laughing because Devin Nunez, um, serving on the House Intelligence, you know, is all upset uh, because he's saying the Democrats may be back channeling to Robert Mueller, which is why they delayed his speaking. Mm-hmm. Is coming to, and I'm laughing. Okay, you mean to tell me how is that different from you're going to the White House White at the House. dead of night? <laughs> right. <laughs> no. I question. mean, see, this this is the hypocrisy of these idiots. <laughs> Um, that, that they think that we're so stupid that we don't know what they have said and done before now when they get out there and start pontificating, you know, oh, my God, this is so offensive. Well, wait a minute. Is it more offensive that they're doing it than when you did it? Mm-hmm. Tell me which is which. So this environment is, is going to need that clarifying moment, that truth-telling moment. Yes. Um, and that's what Mueller, I think, kind of brings to this conversation uh, and they want to get it right. They want to get it right. And I think it's going to be important for, for Mueller to tell us in his own words. You, you, you notice what happened That's when exactly he stood right. at the bank of microphones for eight minutes. Mm-hmm. The political world stopped. Everything stopped. Exactly. And people listened. I mean, there were, there were, there were people in restaurants uh, bar, you know, that had bars that the TVs were turned to not the sports station, but mm-hmm. Robert Mueller in those eight minutes. And that's going to happen again. And that's going to happen again. And that's what Donald Trump does not want to happen. That's what Republicans who support his, his, his crazy uh, don't want to have happen because it exposes everything. Yes, and I, I, it, it's, it's going to happen. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you another question about uh, where do you think things are going in 2020? There are so many other things out here uh, that uh, Donald Trump and his administration should be worried about. Uh, there's the emoluments clause. There's the uh, Southern District of New York uh, uh, investigations. There are um, lots of other issues uh, that could come at uh, our president and his family. Um, do you honestly think... Uh, 
any of that's going to percolate up and there may not even be uh, Donald Trump on the ballot? Uh, you know, do you really think all this is going to play out that he's going to be that right there in 2020? Or could there be another scenario? I mean, I think there, there are going to be many scenarios. I mean, I, I think the timeline of events that are actually going, that, that may ultimately drive this uh, election are not even known yet. That's right. Um, there could be anything from a foreign entanglement um, to um, a slowing down of the economy. Now, slowing down the economy will definitely change the narrative. Mm-hmm. First quarter, second quarter next year, things begin to slow. We're already seeing it globally. Um, and, and these things tend to be sort of, um, you know, uh, foretell where, where things are sort of trending, where the trend lines are, the trend lines are not good, mm-hmm. um, in that regard. Uh, in other words, there is an expectation, which again, you know, the president is calling on the fed to cut interest rates. If the economy is doing so well, why do you need to cut interest rates? Mm-hmm. Economics 101, people, this is not what you do when there's a strong economy is to cut interest rates because of the inflationary impact it can have, the slowing down um, that it can have. You put too much money in the system. Um, or in other, sense, in, o- in other ways, you can wind up taking money out because people kind of hold it. They get scared. They, they get hesitant. So, you know, the feds, I mean, when the president thinks he knows more than the feds do, we got and issues. just because he went went to Wharton doesn't mean he does, by mm-hmm. the way. Um, that's a problem. And so you don't know exactly where the line is going to is going to break or where the road is going to carry us in terms of the kinds of issues um, that that could wind up being um, a boon or a bust for the president. I'll give you one that's going to be one to watch. OK. And that's health care. Mm-hmm. Health care is the Achilles heel of the Republican Party in this administration. Why? Because they lied to the American people for seven years, saying they had a promise and a plan to repeal and replace, and they had neither a promise nor a plan to do either. Mm-hmm. And, and so the fact of the matter is the president now, when the Republicans were in charge, eliminated the mandate that's part of Obamacare. Mm-hmm. That's now going through Obamacare. Uh, lawsuits are now working their way through uh, the courts. Uh, And because that was the linchpin that allowed Justice Roberts to find for Obamacare in the two uh, cases that came um, uh, before the Supreme Court, without that mandate requirement, you could see come June of next year, the Supreme Court um, ruling Obamacare unconstitutional thus sending us back into the dark ages of medical network. I say this is someone who fought tooth and nail to avoid Obamacare. Mm-hmm. I went toe-to-toe with Nancy Pelosi on this issue um, because I don't believe in a nationalized health care system, a Medicare for all kind of world. Um, I think you need to deal with one of the big issues in health care, and that's insurance companies. And, and pharmaceuticals and others who drive the cost and who make the decisions. Putting the patients first and putting those players second and third to me is, is how you begin to write the system. But that's not where we are now. It's like, you know, Obamacare is like a doctor injecting a dye into your vein and then going, oops, I didn't mean to do that. <laughs> I got to take it out. You can't. It's in the bloodstream. So if the court comes along and says, This is no longer the law of the land. It's unconstitutional. That means everyone with pre-existing conditions are no longer covered. That uh, all the and so what happens at that point? Well, what happens at and this is this is where this is where it becomes an interesting bubble. What's the response? Where's the plan? Mm -hmm. You know, you've got you've got members now in the Senate. uh, Some senators and maybe some House Republicans talk about, oh, we've got to have. We, sh- we need to come up with something. Well, the Democrats are. They're having this battle. They want to do a Medicare for all uh, kind of uh, thing. That's not going to happen. Why? Because the consequence of that is you lose, <laughs> you lose a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, Obama promised you you get to keep your plan if you want to. We saw that wasn't true. This one takes away, you know, Medicare for all takes away your private health insurance altogether. 
you don't even have an option. You're automatically put into this public system. Right. That's public. not something the American people want. Right. So you're going to have this argument that's going to transfix the nation um, as they sit with their breath hold, holding their breath, waiting for in premiums, uh, their insurance premiums to be announced that fall, right before the election, mind you. So it can be a real mess um, if the Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate don't have some type of consensus plan uh, in preparation for what happens if the Supreme Court nullifies Obamacare. Because that's immediate. That's not 30 days later. It's like, oh, okay, now it's no longer law. No, that's immediate. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to deal with that. And I don't see a plan. So that's one bubble. Um, among many, that could be a problem for for both parties because the Democrats are arguing Medicare for all, you know, eliminating private health care plans. Republicans are arguing against Obamacare. And here's the twist for you. You could see a space this time next year where Democrats are arguing to undo Obamacare through a Medicare for all system. And Republicans are finding ways to argue to keep it. Keep keep Obamacare in keep some Obamacare. fashion. Keep Obamacare. Right. Oh, yeah. you, you, you really put an interesting wrinkle out there. That, that's, an ex, that's a very fascinating uh, issue that could be on the table. Yeah. And, and, no, it, and it very is. likely. And very likely because as, very it's, likely. as it's winding through the courts. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating. Uh, I, I got a couple of questions. You've been great with your time. Uh, got a couple of questions. Where do you think the Democrats are going with their nominee? When you mentioned the many of them uh. are talking about Medicare for all, where do you who who's going to come out the the nominee uh. on the Democratic side from your position? Uh, God bless the Democrats. They can't help themselves. Um, I, you know, I don't know who's going to come out as a nominee. I'll tell you who I think should come out as a nominee, and that's Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the polls right now are are bust, uh, bolstering my my view on that, um, and and really are making the case for me that the you know I think the American people, more importantly, pr- Democratic primary voters are asking themselves who's the best position to go toe-to-toe against Donald Trump and when. Mm-hmm. So everybody's best position to go toe-to-toe against Donald Trump. And all of those members, all of those folks can go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump. Kamala Harris can take, can deconstruct the Donald Trump argument because generally that's like talk, look, you know, having an argument with a glass of water. So, but anyway, <laughs> she can break that down. That's not a problem. But then the next part can you win? Can you win? And 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 so I put it out there. I put the question out there to Democrats: Do you want to be woke, or do you want to win? Mm-hmm. And being woke uh, is one thing. Yes, that's all about where the party's going, where the country's going. The you know the I was talking about the the value proposition of conservatism. Well, it's the value proposition of, pro, of progressive politics. I get that. I understand it. Mm-hmm. And that's a battle for a future time. But that is not the battle right now. You're not going to win that battle in 2020. The country is not as progressive as you think it is. Yes, oh, we've got gay marriage. Sure, sure, no problem. Yeah, marijuana laws are are falling right and left around the country, except for at the federal level. But the, the states are embracing marijuana. So, the, you know, you kind of get this as, oh, the country's more liberal. Trust me, when it comes to <laughs> core social values and money, no. <laughs> I think, no, they're not. <laughs> I, I, I think you you make some very very good points, uh, interesting points. Uh, before we close out, uh, Michael, you've been so good with your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, no, my pleasure. Uh, the thing I'm going to ask is, I've watched your background, uh, your training, lieutenant governorship, your head of the RNC, uh, your commentator, uh, a star out there on politics. What's in the future for, for, for Michael Steele? What, what are you thinking about next? I'm sure that politics is still in your, in your bones. Uh, no, it is. I, I, you know, I, I, well, it's funny. I, you know, I wanted to be a priest at one point in my early life. I remember. And, and actually st- and studied for the priesthood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, so I've always had this sense of calling and responsibility, which is why I really enjoyed my time as an elected official. Right. Um, because I, I saw, you know, I've, I've never been one of these anti-government Republicans, but I was mm-hmm. always a, uh, a Republican who wanted government to do what it promised it would do um, and what is, what is demanded of it by the citizens. Uh, 
Because at the end of the day, we are the government. The people are the government. So you've got to make it work for them. You've got to make it work for them. Uh, And so I enjoy that. So, yeah, I'd like to get back into it. Uh, I think I've got at least one more campaign left in me somewhere. Um, (laughs) We just have to look and see where that somewhere uh, takes us. You know, there's an opportunity for governor in Maryland uh, after Larry Hogan, who's been a phenomenally good governor for the state of Maryland. And Mm -hmm. I think has laid down some important markers for how Republicans can be successful um, with uh, their agenda and their ideas in a blue state like Maryland. Uh, it's a model for the rest of the country. And, uh, you know, we'll see what that is. And there's also an opportunity at the Senate to go to the federal level and really cause some, wreck some havoc on some people. Yeah, I know. And you tried, <laughs> you know? You tried that at one other point, didn't you? You ran for Senate. I did. I ran right? for the U.S. Senate in 2006. Uh, which was a very tough cycle, very much like very reminiscent of this cycle where the country had um, turned its back on Republican uh, Republicanism and and a lot of what the party was promoting. They were tired of the war, the Mm -hmm. economy beginning to slow. um, And a lot of candidates, even though George Bush was not on the ballot, a lot of candidates paid the price for how people felt about George Bush. You saw a little bit of that in 2018 which is how the Democrats took advantage of uh, the opportunity to take the House. The difference this time is that you're going to have Bush couldn't run for reelection in 2010. Uh, And so, you know, it was one of those things, or rather 2008. So he wasn't on the ballot. It was a free slate. You've got now the ire of a, a significant number of Americans on the ballot at the top of the ticket in 2020. Um, and that's going to be a, a, a very interesting challenge for Republicans across the country. Yeah, you may do well in the deep south and in very, very red states. Uh, but when you get to places like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, uh, Florida, um, Nevada, Georgia, mm-hmm. uh, and I dare say even Texas, uh, right. It becomes a little bit more of a, uh, of a gamble uh, for for the GOP, and it, it's going to be a particular challenge. So you had said that uh, your politics is in the blood, and you 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 know you certainly think about uh, running for governor and possibly the Senate. Uh, what about running for president? Is that <laughs> <laughs> I got let me tie my shoes first. <laughs> <laughs> is that in the offing? <laughs> I, I have no idea that that was. Look, I give a lot to God. I give God all the heavy stuff, so I just pass that on to Him. All right, and, and whatever He says, that's what we, that's the lane we get in. You know. Well, <laughs> well, well Michael, this has been an incredible uh, episode for for us, and I certainly appreciate your your candor, your honesty, and your love for this country. It comes it comes across in your comments, and oh, I appreciate uh, I, that. I just really have enjoyed the the discussion. Uh, it's been stimulating, and you've got some ideas out there that I that I'm certainly going to uh, keep watching. So thanks again All for right, joining us. I really Thank you. Thank you. Bye now. Mm-hmm. We have been listening to uh, Left Right Forward Radio uh, podcast show with uh, Lieutenant Former Lieutenant Governor Michael Steele, uh, Former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland, and Former Chair of the Republican National Committee. Uh, We were talking politics. We talked mostly about federal politics. We talked about the Trump administration. We got beyond partisanship to talk about some things that were good for America, what the Democrats' challenges were and what the Republicans' challenges were. But we all had to think about what's right for America. And so I enjoyed it, and I appreciated uh, Michael's candor and honesty. And I must say again, uh, I want you all to come back and listen to Business and Political Solutions, Left, Right, Forward. Uh, Until next time, Godspeed. Thanks for listening to the Left, Right, Forward show. My guest was Michael Steele, former Lieutenant Governor of Maryland and former Chairman of the Republican National Committee. Former Chairman Steele gave us a lot to think about, from the future of the Republican Party to the House Democrats' decisions on impeachment of the president, to finally the future of affordable health care in America. Next week, my guest will be Madeleine Albright, former UN ambassador and former Secretary of State. You will hear why Secretary Albright calls herself a grateful American 
as an immigrant to America and a daughter of immigrants from Czechoslovakia, she is grateful to be an American. Her father was a Czech diplomat and asked for asylum in the United States after World War II. Madeleine Albright was born in Czechoslovakia, lived in Yugoslavia, London, Switzerland, Poland, and the United States. She speaks at least six languages, Czech, Serbia, English, French, Russian, and Polish. The daughter of a diplomat, and later he became professor of international relations, Madeleine had a strong interest in politics, languages, and diplomacy. This was the backdrop to her success as a democratic fundraiser, staffer to Senator Edward Muskie, and on the national security staff under President Carter. In the Clinton years, Madeleine Albright became ambassador to the United Nations, a cabinet level position, and later was named Secretary of State, our nation's first woman Secretary of State. You will hear Secretary Albright's thoughts on immigration, the United Nations, and the challenges of foreign affairs as Secretary of State, particularly in the Middle East. The themes running throughout the interview encompasses service to our country, belief in America as a welcoming country, and the strong commitment to work twice as hard as a woman in order to be successful. Please tune in next week, October 15th, at the same time, 9 to 10 a.m. on KTAL 101.5 FM. It is with great pride that my guest will be Secretary Madden Albright on the next Left Right Forward show. Until then, Godspeed. You have been listening to the Left Right Forward show, where our mission is to inspire, educate, and inform. Thanks for listening.